Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, wonderful soul podcast family. It is such a privilege and an honor to be back with you today. I hope that wherever you are in the world, that you're having an amazing day, that you are healthy, that you are happy, sending a huge energetic hug through the airwaves. We have an amazing episode for you today. We have the incredible Mark Gober, and in this one, we explore his new book, and it is entitled An End to Upside-Down Thinking dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. So this is a fantastic episode. We explore a lot. Um, We talk about Mark's journey into the paranormal and researching consciousness, the number two uh, question of all of science, the hard problem of consciousness. We talk about remote viewing, telepathy, precognition, the work of Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, psychokinesis, the global consciousness uh, project, the Gonsfield procedure, near death experiences, consciousness survived beyond the death. Uh, people, what am I talking about here? Yeah, near death experiences, uh, psychedelic experiences. I'm reading a huge list here. This is a super uh, in depth episode. I'm going to break it up into two parts because it is deep. Uh, you are going to love it. I want to thank you guys who have been supporting the show. The best way to support this show is to do one act of kindness today, right now, one actual action. Pay it forward. Um, buy somebody. A fun one to do is like if you're at the grocery store, um, the person behind you, um, say, hey, can I see that for a second? And pick like their ice cream or cookies or something and then scan it and then say like free ice cream day or free cookie day. Um, I've been doing that one. It's pretty fun. Um, but just have fun with it. Pick up a piece of trash. Let somebody in in traffic. Listen to somebody. Write, write a kind note. Do one kind act today. And even better, if you could do three kind actions and not tell anybody, you are a spiritual master for the day. So if you can repeat that, you can be a spiritual master every single day so that's the best way to support the podcast if you want to do that um if you want to go a step further leaving a review please leave a review in itunes they help a tremendous amount and you can keep it simple like this one from sports one two three seven eight nine it just says awesome show highly recommended matt does a fantastic job that's great um you can be more elaborate if you wish um but any review does help it helps in so many ways so please share episodes please leave a review that really helps and if you feel so inclined you can go to patreon.com and um, support me there and I want to thank so much to David Solomon who's a guest on the show he's coming up and David Victor who chipped a buck in the bucket it really goes a long way trust me so if you want to support the show in that way you can go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair and that would be fantastic I'd really appreciate that I want to thank my sponsor as always David Lone Bear Senapas, Native American elder who is an extraordinary being check out his work at lonebearsarts.com 
Um, he's working on amazing science. I'm working closely with him and Zuni elder Clifford Mahuti. They're incredible beings. They do need support. So anybody out there that can help with uh, graphic design, if you know any benevolent investors, if you um, can help us in any way, we would appreciate that. Also, Sync Tuition. You can get 3D binaural beat gamma wave brainwave entrainment tracks. It is pretty intense stuff. They're incredible tracks. And you get three free tracks if you go to bit.ly forward slash gamma waves. Uh, make sure to go to mattbelair.com and sign up for the email list and if you go to forward slash lucid dreaming you will get a free lucid dreaming uh, hypnotic audio to help it uh, happen quicker and easier and also an ebook guide to lucid dreaming so check all that out also zenathlete.com a guide to self-mastery it could be called zen life it really doesn't matter it's really all the best tools for self-mastery for achieving a heart-centered goal um programming into your mind and body the belief systems the things you need to achieve that goal and getting there from a state of fulfillment from wherever you are now and for those of you guys who want to go a step deeper and you want some coaching um, I've been coaching for a long time a lot of different people everywhere from what I would call regular Joes like me um, that want to level up in their life to CEOs to everything in between so if you're really serious about leveling up um, we can explore the heart journey creation which is basically a hypnotic process to find your, your heart's purpose um, we can do an hour coaching session and we I am taking on some one-on-one -on -one clients for a monthly thing for those who are really ready to dive deep and we are going to explore basically how do we uncover any limitations, um, remove limiting beliefs, identify a clear goal from your heart, something you're really inspired to do, and then program the beliefs and everything that you need to go get there from a state of fulfillment and also doing it uh, very effectively and all the tools and techniques that I've learned in consciousness, spirituality, peak performance, personal development, flow state. Uh, you're going to have one-on-one -on -one attention as we go through that journey. So if you're interested in that, just go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and I'm happy to help you out. Um, if you're interested in having David Lone Bear, Clifford Mahuti, or myself come speak or whether you're looking at uh, Native American wisdom, spirituality, consciousness, those guys are amazing. I bow to them. And I'm also pretty decent too at talking about peak performance, consciousness, and spirituality as well. Um, so if you want us to come to your event, we'd be happy to be there. You just need to reach out at matt at zenathlete.com and uh, be happy to explore the collaboration options with you. So anyway, I think that's it. Let's, before we get into it, let's start uh, come into a, a state of peace and coherence from wherever you are. So whatever you're doing, just stop. And uh, just taking a deep breath in through your nose and just setting the intention to come to peace and coherence now. Hold that breath in and then just imagine a white, powerful, golden crystal light coming down from the universe, pulsing through every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being as you let that breath out slowly with all the cares, all the limitations, all the doubts and all the tasks of the day. Taking another deep breath in through the nose and this time imagine earth energy coming up through the feet, coming through every cell and every muscle of your body as you hold that breath and just make this firm commitment to be kind and compassionate to yourself and others and just think about something you're grateful for as you see these energies from spirit and the earth coming and pulsing through your entire being and just let that breath out slowly with all the cares, all the stresses of the day. Taking one more deep breath in through your nose. Now focusing on one thing that you're grateful for. It could be a family member, a job, having a house, food, a friend, your eyesight, driving a car. Just one thing you're really grateful for, a family member. Magnify that feeling and I want you to send out that energy to all the people on the podcast. Just all the love and energy and support and encouragement to all your friends, your family, your enemies, everyone you've ever met. Uh, everybody across the world, just see that energy go out and I'm sending you all that energy, my love, support, compassion, encouragement, um, all my well wishes that you may be whole, perfect, harmonious, incredible, amazing, inspired, uh, fulfilled, 
um, worthy and just over the top stoked on life just as you are so there we go i think we are ready to get into this incredible two-parter with the man mark gober hello and welcome to another episode of the master mind body and spirit show i'm your host matt belair today's guest is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science After researching extensively, he wrote an end to upside-down thinking to introduce the general public to these cutting-edge ideas, all in an effort to encourage a much-needed global shift in scientific and existential thinking. He is a senior member of Sherpa Technology Group, a firm that advises businesses on mergers and acquisitions and strategy. He previously worked uh, as an investment banking analyst in New York. He has been quoted for his opinions on business and technology matters in Bloomberg, Business Week, and elsewhere. He has participated in several Summit Series events and has attended the annual TED conference for the past eight years. He graduated with distinction from Princeton University, where he was captain of the tennis team. Welcome to the show, Mark Gober. Thank you very much, Matt. What's up, brother? Happy to be talking to you. Yeah, man, I'm excited about this. I got—I was saying I got your book um, just a few days before the podcast, and so I was away doing an event in Sedona, and I got to flip through, and as I did, I got more and more excited about this conversation because, uh, number one, you're extremely intelligent. You're a Princeton man. That's amazing. That's great. Number two, <laughs> you're exploring science and consciousness in a way that I don't know if I could ever get to that ability, but this is why I have the show so I can have people like you come back with this incredible research and tell me what the heck you found. So why don't you give the audience a little bit of the background about who you are, um, how you got to where you are today in writing the book, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Absolutely. So all the things you said, Matt, those are the reasons I wrote it. I wanted to put things together for people in an easy to read fashion. So the background here is if we had had this conversation about two years ago, I wouldn't have known about anything in the book. So this is all very new to me. Uh, my background is very traditional. Like you said, I went to Princeton, started off in the economics department because that's what a lot of people did there. Wasn't sure what I wanted to study. Realized that economics made the assumption that people are rational. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. People are not always rational, so we can't draw these fancy curves. So I wanted to do something else. And I thought about astrophysics because it was a really strong department and I wanted to understand how the universe works. So I took some basic courses and I thought it was awesome. But there was a problem because I was on the tennis team, which is division one at Princeton, very demanding. I was later the captain, realized that I couldn't do astrophysics and tennis at the same time. So I decided to do psychology with a focus on behavioral economics. So I wrote my senior thesis on Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory. So he wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which has become very popular. It's all about how people make errors in judgment and decision making um, in business or otherwise. So I had not, you know, I wasn't really into the consciousness thing. I was somewhat exposed to it, but not really. It was more about how people make decisions. From Princeton, I went into investment banking starting in July of 2008. So that was right before the, you know, one of the biggest financial crises ever hit. And I was at one of the large investment banks on Park Avenue that was going through issues. And my clients at the bank were the very financial institutions that were having problems. So banks and insurance companies were my actual clients. So not only was I at a bank, but I was advising other banks and insurance companies. So I was not sleeping. Like it was, I think investment banking is tough 
for a normal person, but during that period was even tougher. And I wasn't a finance guy. I was a liberal arts major. So there were, I was, I was working with other people who were, you know, like NYU Wharton who had, were used to the finance thing. So for me, it was an adjustment on many levels. Wasn't sleeping, wasn't thinking about any of the existential stuff that had interested me in college. Um, so I did that for a little under two years. I left New York to join my current firm, which is called Sherpa Technology Group. It's sort of like investment banking. We advise on mergers and acquisitions, and we also give strategic advice. So what does that have to do with, with my book? I mean, on the surface, it really doesn't have much to do with it. The book is kind of a side passion project. And um, about two years ago, I was listening to podcasts. I wasn't intending to get into this stuff. I was listening to health podcasts. And the first kind of exposure I had to this was a woman who described very paranormal things. Like she could communicate with non-physical beings. She could talk to dead people. And I had never, she didn't sound totally crazy, uh, but I had never heard anything like it before. So I was like, this is kind of interesting. Um, and then I ended up listening to more podcasts along those, along that, um, same type of, you know, topic. And I realized after a while of just listening, driving down the 101, I live in San Francisco to and from the office, I heard enough people describe very similar things of, of kind of this idea that consciousness is existing beyond the brain and that it's not localized to the brain and that when our body dies, our consciousness doesn't die. I'm like, if this is real then I need to rethink everything because I was not in this camp at all. My perspective was, I think what our scientific education teaches us, whether it's explicit or not, which is that consciousness comes from the brain. So I never even thought about that assumption because it's so embedded in everything is that I'm aware right now because of stuff happening in my brain, chemical activity, electrical activity. That's the reason I'm conscious. So if you take that very literally, which is what I did unknowingly, when your brain dies, when your body dies, what happens? It's over. Your consciousness is gone because the producer of your consciousness, I thought, was my brain. So that has implications for how you think about your life. It means that your life has a finite amount of time. Um, and I think that causes fear probably at a level that I wasn't even aware of and probably causes some sadness and just general um, you know, not being as happy as I could have been. Even though I was going along, you know, my daily business, I probably had some angst at a level of, of thinking about existence. That all changed for me very quickly in, in late 2016 as I listened to more and more podcasts. And I was like, wait a second, there's no way that all these people are independently describing the same thing and that they're all lying or that they're all delusional. So I realized I had to look into it. And that was a, a multi-pronged approach. It was looking at the science, which I didn't even know existed, and we can get into that. My book is based on that science. But also, I, I said, okay, well, if this is real, then I should be able to talk to different psychics and energy healers, and they should be able to do things. And sure enough, they were able to do things that I couldn't explain. I mean, not always, but there were certain things. It's like there's, they couldn't have looked that up. How did they know it? And it, it was just lining up with all the research I was doing. So I kind of, I kind of freaked out. Like Thanksgiving of 2016, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? Because I'm living in this world where people are not thinking this way, at least in, in my, every, my day to day, people aren't thinking about consciousness existing beyond the body. That is such an out there topic in certain circles. And I'm learning there are a lot of circles where it's like commonplace, but I'm like, well, how do I live in this world? If I'm, I'm walking around realizing that we're, we're like a physical form that's 
we're consciousness having the experience of a physical form rather than the reverse. We're not a physical body that has a consciousness. We're a consciousness experiencing a world through a body. Totally different. What do I do? So I just, I thought about it a lot and ended up just going down the path of very intense research. So I spent a year outside the office where all I was doing was reading books. And I remember sending pictures to friends of the stack of books that was growing on my, on my table and on my bookshelf. It was like, just, I couldn't read enough because I had to relearn reality, basically. All the stuff I was never taught, wasn't exposed to it at Princeton, even though I've now learned there was a lab called the Engineering Anomalies Research Lab run by the former Dean of Engineering. So we'll talk about that, I mentioned in my book. I didn't know it even existed. Um, so there, I, I learned about all this stuff. And as I was learning about it, I was telling family members and different friends, although at first I was skittish, I would, didn't want to talk about it because I thought it was so out there. But I, I finally got the courage to talk to people about it. And the responses I was getting from people, first of all, they were very interested. And then over time, people were like, Mark, this is changing how I'm thinking about my life. They started to have very positive changes. And I could see it in them because they were open to these ideas or at least the possibility. And then the more evidence I exposed them to, it's like, wait, how can I reconcile my old worldview with this new evidence? I have to think about things differently. So enough people started to tell me that I was having an impact on them that I was like, okay, let me see what happens if I put this down on paper. So this is the story of how the book came about. I never had an intention of writing a book about anything or about being public about anything other than my business stuff. So this is, this is new. July 4th weekend last year, it was a four day weekend. I said, okay, I have a lot of knowledge now. I'm just gonna sit down and write. So I sat in my apartment for four days. I would get up at 7 a.m. and I would work until 1 a.m. because my body would start shutting down. In my investment banking days, I probably could have gone longer, but not anymore. 7 a.m. to 1 a.m., about four days in a row. And I came out of that weekend with more, more than half this book written and then finished it over the next few weekends. So all of a sudden, I had this book that I knew would have a major impact on people because it was like what I thought to be the strongest evidence in different areas. Uh, and so I'm like, well, what do I do with this book? I want to get it out. I'm ready to go. Let's let people read it. Let's get an editor and, and get it out there. And I had two different scientists look at it, and the opinions they gave me, they're both authors, is, is, look, Mark, this is really good for a mainstream generalist audience. You should really try to get it out there to that type of audience. So apparently the way you do that is to get a literary agent. I had never even heard of that before. Um, so I looked around. I, was, I saw a lot of agents in New York. And then a few people mentioned to me a, a man named Bill Gladstone. And Bill represents Eckhart Tolle. He represents... Dr. Irvin Laszlo, who's a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Neil Donald Walsh, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, so some big authors in the space. So I'm like, oh, this guy sounds, he sounds like someone who would be aligned with me. So I sent him an email and said, hey, I'm looking for an agent who's philosophically aligned. Here are a few sample chapters. Here's my proposal. Um, and this is the basic summary of the book. He responds the same day and says, you know, this resonates. Here's an agreement. We just got to get you more exposure because you don't have any exposure as an author. So all of a sudden, a few weeks after writing this book, I had probably the best agent I could have gotten in the space. I mean, and I, I tell people that now and they can't believe it. For me, I'm like, oh, okay, this is how it works. Apparently, it doesn't always work that way. So I was very fortunate to get, to get hooked up with Bill and, and Waterside Productions. And Waterside is also uh, publishing my book, which I'm very happy about. They're, they're super aligned and they, they understand the potential impact here. So that's the basic story of how the book came about. I definitely want to talk about the book, but I want to stop there in case you have any questions about my story or anything you want to dive into. 
Nope. I'll just say that I love it. You remind me of uh, my good friend, Sean, who we, we I asked you at the beginning because you're from uh, uh, San Fran if you're going to Burning Man. And my friend, Sean, is extremely smart, extremely, extremely smart. And he's a financial, uh, he's a banker. And uh, he just, he was so hard over there. Now we're good friends. And he always says, he's like, man, if you can get me, you can get anyone. And it feels like, you know, you were, you were so hard on that side and now coming over here. And that's good because it's bridging both sides. You know, for me, I probably need to come more into your world and learn a little bit more of the hard science, a little bit more of the analytical, a little bit more of the process. And so I just love how you came over here because it's powerful when you have minds like that, that are looking at it brand new with such a strong skill set in evidence, in scientific study, in how to, um, do like logical thinking and, uh, and scientific process. So that's all I'll say. And please continue. Let us know where the research took you. Sure. Well, I first want to say that what you just described, Matt, is the reason I'm doing this is that I think I can reach people who were in my shoes two years ago and before, and also people who are in your shoes who have a knowing, but maybe I'm not sure what you've looked at, but maybe you haven't looked at quite as much evidence or people that just want to have the backing so that when they have a conversation with someone, they can say, oh, this is what I think is, is real about reality and this is why, and this gives them the ability. So I wrote it with that specific goal in mind. Um, so in terms of the book itself, the book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. So the book looks at, which I have what I have come to learn is the number two question remaining in all of science, according to Science Magazine. And that question, as they phrase it, is what is the biological basis of consciousness? What does that mean in layman's terms? So for you and your listeners, Matt, if you can touch your arm, super easy, right? Touch your leg, makes sense. Touch your head, you can do that. If I ask you to touch your mind or touch your consciousness, can't do it, it's not physical. So this is precisely the problem that Science Magazine, and it's called the hard problem of consciousness. This is the problem. How is it that a physical body that you can touch, how does that physical body and a brain produce a non-physical mind or consciousness or an awareness? We don't know the answer. This is like the big open secret in all of science. We know how to send people to the moon and genetically modify biological systems, but we don't even know where our own mind comes from. So that to me, that still blows me away, that this most fundamental part of our experience, our own awareness, is, has an unknown origin. Okay, so my book looks at this question and says, let's just first establish that we don't even know where it comes from. Beyond that, let's look at whether the brain produces consciousness. And what I would have told you two years ago is, well, someone gets in a car accident, they damage part of their brain, and then maybe they can't see very well, or they're, uh, they have mental problems after the accident. So obviously the brain produces consciousness, because look what happened to your brain and look what happened to your consciousness. So the error in that thinking, the thinking is, oh, well, the brain must cause and produce consciousness because the brain is related to consciousness. That is a fallacy. In statistics, the fancy term is correlation does not imply causation. In layman's terms, an example that I reference in my book from a philosopher, Bernardo Castro. In, in Northern California, there were lots of fires last year. And when you had a large fire, there were lots of firefighters that came. We don't assume that the firefighters caused the fire just because they were there at the same time. That might be the exact same error that we're making with consciousness. There's a lot of activity in the brain and we can sense a lot of conscious experience. The two things occur at the same time, but it doesn't always mean that one causes the other. 
what's an alternative? An alternative is, let's say the brain's like an antenna or a filter for consciousness, for some consciousness that's not localized or produced by the body. If that's true, then you could damage the brain, you could damage the antenna or the filter, and you'd get a messed up, uh, when you're, if you're looking at your TV set, the show might be scratchy because you've screwed up the antenna. But it doesn't mean that the signal itself has been damaged or that the signal even comes from the TV. We know that the signal's picked up from outside the TV set, and that's a very rough analogy for what consciousness might be like. So the brain is sort of this processor for consciousness, so that's where I've come out on it, that it's, it's very much related to consciousness. And when I say consciousness, I mean, I am sitting here talking to you, Matt. What is the I that is having that experience? It's this kind of inner subjective experience. That's what I mean by consciousness. That is related to my brain, but what I'm saying is that it's not produced by the brain. And that is a, in some circles, massively controversial statement. Um, in other circles, it's like, oh, obviously I knew that. It always depends on who I talk to. So that's, that's the crux of, of what my book is looking at, that assumption. And to me, and I want to get into the implications later, that assumption is underlying so many problems in the world because it's leading to fear of death. It's leading to a sense of separation. And what, I, what I'm coming to, what I think all the evidence converges on is the idea that not only is consciousness not produced by the brain, that it exists beyond space and time, but that we're fundamentally connected as part of the same consciousness. So that has major implications for how we treat each other. And then on the biggest scales, things like interactions between nations and world peace, that's like way out there, but th that's the implication. So um, that's, the, that's the general premise of the book. And the book looks at the scientific evidence, which examines whether or not consciousness is produced by the brain. And what it challenges, there's a fancy term in philosophy, it's called materialism. And I was a materialist unknowingly, and I think a lot of the scientific community is, and a lot of the world is. Basically what materialism says is the following, and this is exactly what I'm challenging with the book. It says there was a big bang 13.8 years ago. So that filled the universe with matter. When I say matter, I mean physical stuff. Like I'm touching my table, it's made of matter, atoms. When you have enough atoms, matter in the universe, just running around, interacting, you end up with a few of those atoms interacting with each other, and that's what's called chemistry, just the interaction of matter. And when you have enough random chemical interactions throughout this huge universe, you're, end, you're bound to end up with a self-replicating molecule. Like probability would tell you that one in however many billions, you're, you're going to end up with a structure that can replicate itself. That's something like DNA, the basis of our existence as biological beings. So DNA um, allows for the evolution of, of a living being like a human. The human being evolves to have a brain, and then magically consciousness pops out. So materialism says we start with a material universe made of matter, and we end up with consciousness. Matter creates consciousness. That's what materialism says. And that is what I'm saying is upside down. The upside down thinking is no, consciousness is primary, and matter is an experience within and created from consciousness. Okay? Any questions before I go on? Uh, no, but I agree with that. I love it. Um, okay. And are you aware of... Um, Shoot, who's the Princeton Research Lab? Uh, they've been on the podcast a couple times, but they have a, a consciousness research institute there. And uh, Adam Curry was on and was a part of that. And that's what his research was looking at. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the godfather. He was on too. Shoot, I got to remember his name. Robert, Robert John? Nope, but I should get that guy on. No, that's good. That's a new name. He, he recently passed away, but Roger oh, Nelson, no. I'm going to guess. Yes, Roger Nelson. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so Roger, so, 
he's great. He's endorsing my book. He's been a, a very helpful. Yeah, process. amazing. You know, and I think, well, I want to just touch on one thing that I think is so important. It's not like the, the materialist view is wrong per se. It's a view and you can have it. But when you get to the root and what you've done here is it brought it to the surface is the, is the implication or the assumptions that lead to fear of death and separation. And that for me, when you break it all the way down to the very core, that creates all of the uh, tertiary or other problems of the world because we're afraid and then we think we're separate. So we need to protect. And so in, these sim in, this, in this shift of worldview, it changes everything and how you experience life. And it is going to uh, change within community and culture. Because if you realize that China is the same as you and the Taliban are the same as you and the person walking down the street that just looks a little bit different is the same as you and you're not afraid, um, it's huge, huge shift. So I think that the, where you came to the conclusion is the most important part. And so I'll let you continue on. But, you know, I speak about that all the time is like, they'll talk about new earth or 5d. And one of them is fear based to love based. You know, if I don't have any fear that I just stop existing, um, then I can operate in a much different way. And I think that that's important. Totally agree with you. So I'm on the same page. Um, and, and I want to, I want to go back to your point about materialism that, there's a lot that we can still use from it. So the physical sciences, chemistry, biology, I'm not saying we should get rid of those. I'm, I'm arguing that we should recontextualize those as experiences within a broader consciousness rather than being the producer of consciousness. So there's a lot we can still use scientifically from all this, but I think we could advance even further if we rethink about what consciousness is. So how do I arrive at this conclusion that consciousness isn't produced by the brain? We, we established before that there's no question that the brain has a relationship with consciousness, but is the brain producing it? So my book looks at various independent areas of scientific evidence, which to me argue that it's not produced by the brain. Consciousness isn't localized to the brain or dependent on it. And my reasoning is that if any of these phenomena are real, any of them, and it's like, I can't remember how many exactly, but there might, there's 13 chapters in the book, and we go through different phenomena, and within each phenomena, we go through different pieces of evidence. If any of those are real, we can't explain it very well at all if the brain produces consciousness. But if the brain doesn't produce consciousness, consciousness is beyond space and time, then these things are not even paranormal. They're actually what you would expect to be true. So we have these little anomalies popping up, and it's, it's similar to around 1900 when people were saying, oh, we've discovered everything there is to discover in science except for a few rounding errors. And Lord Kelvin, who was one of the authorities, he said, well, we've discovered everything except for these two little clouds. And the clouds were these small anomalies that they couldn't figure out, but they had figured everything else out. Those anomalies turned into quantum mechanics and relativity theory. Those are two of the biggest theories in all physics that changed everything. And I think we have something very similar right now. We have these little anomalies that sometimes you only sense through statistics, and those could end up changing everything for us. And those are what I go through. So these are the different phenomena that I discuss chapter by chapter, in addition to talking about quantum physics and some of this general framework. The first section on phenomena is, is psychic abilities. And I'm talking about real psychic abilities, not like a machine that's artificial intelligence that can computationally come up with things. I'm talking about psychic. So I have a chapter on what's known as remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something at a distance. So that means theoretically I could sit here, close my eyes, go into a trance and tell you what's in some random location in Africa and draw it out. The US government ran a 25 year program on this. 
They release documents that were declassified within the last few years. They're in my book. They say remote viewing is real. So we can go into that later, but it's pretty explicit. I mean, I gave a talk. I was in Italy at the Science and Non-Duality Conference um, a few months ago, and people are very in tune with these things. And I put up those slides showing these are just from the government. I downloaded them at the CIA website, and they're in my book. And people were like, oh, my goodness. Like, what do you do with that? Are they lying? Are they, they make a mistake? Um, that's just one piece of evidence. So remote viewing is one. Very well explained if consciousness is everywhere. Like, of course you would be able to access something distant. Telepathy. So that's like, I think of a friend, and then five minutes later, they call me. It's like, oh, is that random? Or did I pick something up? Um, I showed the evidence that that is not a random occurrence sometimes, and there are actually studies on that. Precognition. So that's a fancy word for saying, knowing the future before it happens. And sometimes it's very explicit, like someone has a precognitive dream where they dream something and it's in detail and then the next day or, or later in the future, it happens. The more subtle version is the body responds very subtly seconds before some arousing picture is shown. And this has been done by multiple researchers where it's super subtle and you need statistics to look at it. But the body seems to know that something's coming before anyone knows like a computer's randomly generating the picture, not even the researcher knows what's gonna happen, and the person's body's hooked up to a machine. I've actually done this at the Institute of Noetic Sciences because I wanted to see it myself, and the body responds a little bit before. And it, it, when, it's, what's in a, when it's an arousing picture versus a peaceful picture, for example, the body knows that something's gonna come, and it's like, how does it do that? Well, if consciousness is not limited to the present, if it's beyond space and time, then it's like it's reaching into a future that is known to it beyond our, you know, must be somehow in our subconscious. Um, that is not well explained by, by the materialist view. I talk about animals and, and evidence that there are things animals can do that can be explained by these same types of abilities. And in the same way that we have a brain, animals have brains, whether they're, I mean, they're different structures, but they still have brains. So does that mean they can do some of these things? I would argue that we need to be looking at it closely. And there's some emerging evidence that animals can do these things, like pets that know when their owners are coming home. Um, Dr. Rupert Cheldrake has run studies on this, has done many replications where they have a camera on the dog, they have a camera on the owner who is sent to a random location miles away, not in her car at a random time, and the dog starts walking to the door when she decides, when she's told she's going home and is walking to her taxi. It's pretty wild. It's hard to explain other than fraud, um, which is an, a possible explanation for some of these studies. What I reason, though, is that you put all these together, the odds that they're all fraudulent or they're all bad statistics, I haven't seen evidence for that. So to believe that is almost like a, it's like a faith-based thing. Of, well, I just don't think they're, I think it's just made up. Um, so that's, that's animals. Chapter on psychokinesis, and that's a fancy word for the idea that the mind can affect physical matter. So it's like I, the, the best case that's been studied the most at Princeton it's called the random number generator. So this is a machine that spits out zeros and ones in a totally random fashion, sometimes by like radioactive decay. So no one's controlling it. We just know it's random. What do you expect? You expect 50% zeros, 50% ones over the long run. So what they did at Princeton and elsewhere, and Roger Nelson has been doing this, is they say, hey, I want you to put, Matt, put your mind to this, this machine. I want you to make it produce more ones than zeros. And you're like, well, that sounds crazy, but okay, I'll try to do it. What happens? You end up, in the long run, people end up having a very, very small, but highly statistically significant effect on the machines, meaning that the machine starts to produce slightly more ones and zeros. 
And if you look at the odds that that's happening against just a chance occurrence, doing the math, it doesn't seem random. That's what the math is showing, and the odds that it's happening by chance are more than over more than one in a billion. So these are these have been proven over and over again, and it's a subtle effect. And people, I've heard the argument of, well, why should we care if it's such a small effect? And I mean, my my counter to that is, well, why does it matter what the size of the effect is? I mean, the Ebola virus is microscopic. Should we just not care about it because it's tiny? I mean, we know it can have a major effect on people. The same with bacteria or anything that's, that's small but has a big effect. These are these little anomalies, these clouds that I was referencing that, you know, like Lord Kelvin in 1900, these little clouds that we'll figure out, well, we need to figure out how that someone's mind can affect the behavior of a physical process with no physical contact. I mean, that changes all of, all of physics. So that's psychokinesis. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, and I was just going to add that um, also with the random number generators, when there's a global event, so 9-11, and they've also actually tested it at Burning Man when everybody's looking at the man, um, the numbers go less random. So if everybody in the world is looking at the same event, it starts to become a little bit more cohesive or, the, or it, it becomes not so random. It's a great point. It's called the Global Consciousness Project, and Roger Nelson has left Princeton. He's now working on that full time. And what's crazy about that is these machines are set up all over the world, and they're behaving non-randomly when there's a major global event where there's some kind of emotional thing going on on a global scale. But the thing is, people don't even know those machines are there. Most people don't even know, and the machines are still reacting, whereas in some of the Princeton studies and others, it's more explicit of, hey, Matt, put your mind to this machine, even though you're far away and they're still having an effect. So it shows that something about the, the coherence of emotion or intention is having an effect on the physical world. So this has major implications for how, like, what does group intention mean? If we all get together and think about the same thing, can we affect how the world works? Can we affect the collective consciousness? These are big questions that are being studied only by a minority of scientists. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is we need to understand how this works a bit much better because if that's really true, then what could we do to affect the world in a positive way? I think at the very least, what it's told me is like, look, we don't understand how all this works, but the way our mind is, is thinking and the intentions we're setting definitely have an impact. Or at the very least, it can't hurt to try to think positively because there maybe there's something bigger happening beyond just a, a small change in a, a random number generator. And I do talk about some cases of energy healing where there are certain individuals who have these crazy abilities to like kill cells from far away. And these have been studied, and I talk about them in my book, from, by universities in the United States. Um, they haven't been replicated many times, but people are looking at it. And, and there are cases around the world of miracle energy healers. It's the same principle of being able to focus intention and sometimes the effect is really small, like it is for maybe an average person. And you have Michael Jordans of this, you know, the people that are off, off the bell curve, they're the outliers that can do things really, really well. And that's one of the tricky things with this whole area of, of psychic abilities is, I would argue that we all have them, even if they're subtle abilities, but then you have these all-stars, just like in basketball, you have Michael Jordan, you have LeBron James, they're the outliers that can do things amazingly well. They're super psychic, for example, if we're comparing to psychics. Uh, but then you have the, the general population who can, they can dribble a ball, but they're not going to be in the NBA, for example. So that's something to keep in mind if that's why maybe we see this, this difference. And also, we're not in a society that's harnessing these abilities. So let's say someone who is naturally talented for reasons we don't understand, 
maybe their brain's configured in a certain way that allows them to receive the signal if the brain's like an antenna, just naturally better, but they're not harnessing it. So it's hard to really, we have this now and then phenomenon for people who are amazing at it. And then the rest of us, maybe you can't tell unless it's a one-off occurrence or you have to do the math, the statistics on it. So that's just something to keep in mind as we think about psychics. And I, I want to just clarify, I'm using the word psychic. That's a term that um, sometimes, like people, when I talk to them about psychics, they're like, well, are, are those are psychics real? Can they actually do things? I thought they were all fraudulent. I'm not arguing that every person that claims is a psychic is real and not fraudulent. I'm sure there are some out there, like in any industry, there are people that take advantage or just aren't that talented. Uh, but I would argue that there likely are some people with extraordinary abilities. And at the very least, there um, I think the general population has these subtle abilities that we have an experience, like the Institute of Noetic Sciences, they'll call it a noetic experience, and some, an inner knowing that will happen unpredictably or, or randomly, um, and that you, you can't always plan when it's going to happen. So that's the first half of the phenomena of the book. Anything you want to dive into there, Matt? Any phenomena? Well, I was just gonna, I was just gonna draw a bridge. Something came up for me where just, um, I don't know if any any of your studies have led to this, but just the power of belief. So you know, everybody thought that the four minute mile was impossible, but once it was done, everybody started to break it. And so culturally, what we're looking at is is like you brought up, well, like, hey, intelligence is memorizing facts, going through here, hard science, materialism, you got to see it, you got to prove it. And so that thought of psychic power, intuitive nature um, isn't present. So the, the, so culturally, we're not developing that skill that we may have. And the other thing that I'll just suggest is that if, if everybody gets out and they're dropped in the middle of a jungle or something's happened, their body is the intelligence. We don't know where it comes from, but if you take the consciousness out, I call that like my dumb, dumb brain because it only, uh, when I read a book on consciousness a long time ago, I don't know if the, the data still stands, but my consciousness can process five to seven bits of information at once. So I can talk to you. Um, I can kind of notice the fan in the background. I can grab my coffee if I want, um, but I can't process too much. But the unconscious can process thousands of bits. So if you and I are in the middle of like a fair and a bunch of lions come in, all of a sudden, you and I are doing parkour moves that we couldn't even imagine to us both hanging with like a two finger, you know, proper rock climbing grip from something crazy to outrun this lion. That's the body's intelligence that's picking up all of these things that we're not even aware of. Say, get your butt out of there. And I don't think step here, step here, move here. The body just does it. And then once I'm hanging and I'm kind of safe, then my consciousness, you know, my limited brain, I won't call it the dum-dum, my limited consciousness of, you know, map processing what the heck happened comes in and is like, oh my goodness, I almost just get eaten by a lion. And so what we're doing is we're tapping into this um, bigger understanding. And that's what, you know, if you look at Zen philosophies and things like that, they're really, they're seeing how they can bring their conscious awareness, that limited consciousness into the expanded consciousness. And so I think just the only point that I wanted to make is that culturally, this belief of the four minute mile, we're not even having the discussion. You know, it's like there's no value. And when I went through school, I, I was always curious, like something's missing, something's missing. And we're not balancing the right and the left. And uh, my friend Robert Grant, who is on the podcast, he's super brilliant. His uh, company's on the New York Stock Exchange. He just made mathematical breakthroughs that got proven like a month ago and just broke math. Somehow you can Google them and check it out. But he 
presented this in Egypt. I didn't know what he said. I did his course. I still don't know what he said. So someone like you might be able to um, help me like quantify that. But when I asked him about sport, I was like, hey, Robert, how could I use this math for sport? He's just like, for me, it's both sides of the brain. I do art and I do the math because they're polar opposites. And what you're doing is you're getting the brain, the two hemispheres to connect together. So we need both sides. We just haven't placed any value on that, um, the unknown. And when you really step into the unknown and you have that experience, that non-local mind or, and it's direct, you know instantly that you don't know what reality is. You, you know because you're in this space of consciousness that just breaks all that and then you come back down. Um, so I just want to add that and go back to you. I don't know, and you can keep going. I think you have a, a line of thought here, but I'm curious also just some of the best science, like some of the best studies that, are, that if you are logical, you're going to look at those and really come to a, you know, a place where you've got to think about it. I agree with all that, Matt. Um, I think it relates to some research on meditation, which is the quieting of the left brain effectively, which is the logical side of the brain. And there's evidence that people who are regular meditators are better able to do these psychic functionings. Um, so Dean Radin is someone who's looked at this in his book, Supernormal. Dean's one of the world leaders on this, and he's been great with me in this book, and he's, he's endorsed it and has given great suggestions throughout. Um, so I, I recommend Dean Radin to everybody. He's looked at meditation. And, and his book, Supernormal, talks about yoga and these practices that quiet the mind, quiet the logical brain that allow us then potentially to access this non-local mind, this intelligence or knowing that we can't rationally think about. It's like, well, how did you come up with that? How did you come up with that solution? It just came to me. And we can't break it down. It's, it's this kind of inner knowing that I think we're trained not to trust as much. We're trained to, like in finance for me, we need to make a business decision. Okay, run a financial model, come up with a discounted cash flow analysis, and then compare the two numbers, and that's your decision. That's it. And there's a, there's a place for that, for sure. But then there's also this, well, I think this decision's better. I can't really tell you every reason why, but I just like, no, it's better. And that's this right brain versus left brain thing. Um, and I think it needs to be explored more. And that's one, another reason I wrote this is if we think of the brain very differently as, as a receiver or a transceiver of consciousness, then we need to understand how that receiver works to better understand how to optimize our own performance and our intuition and our just everything that we do. Um, so I'm hoping that people will rethink the brain and then potentially just uncover new things. Along those lines, I wanna go back to telepathy because I kind of glossed over that and one of the key studies is there. And this is something Dean Radin and others have looked at very closely. It's called the Gonsfeld procedure. And this is another one where you have to do statistics, but it's, it, to me it's really powerful because it's been replicated so many times. The basic design is I'm sitting in a room um, with headphones on, put in a very relaxed state. It's called the Gonsfeld state, where basically I'm almost in a trance. They send Matt into another room and they say, hey, Matt, I'm going to show you this picture and I want you to send an image of that picture to Mark. I know it sounds crazy. You're in a separate room. He, has, he doesn't even know what you're looking at. I want you to send it to him while he's relaxed. I come out of my state after you've been sending it to me mentally. And I'm shown four pictures and I'm asked to choose which one Matt was sending to me from this other room from a distant place. And I'm like, I don't know, this one. And you would expect that I would be correct one out of four times because it's totally random, right? 25%. What do researchers find with everyday people? These are not psychically trained people is that they're correct about 32% of the time. Now, if you do statistics on this, it's massively significant. Like that's not a chance occurrence that 32% versus 25 and it actually makes a lot of sense because if we were 100% telepathic all the time, then we'd know each other's thoughts, but we know that's not the case all the time. 
Instead, it's subtle. It's like, I'm thinking about this person and then they text me. It's this subtle where some information is getting through. So to me, that is just a majorly significant finding that has been replicated enough times and they've aggregated the, the results from different studies. And when you put it together, you continue to get close to 32%, which is not a chance occurrence. So this again is some of the science that I referenced that to me is very strong and people who have actually taken the time to look at it can't explain it through regular normal means. And that actually brings me to another point, which we'll probably talk about later, is, well, okay, Mark, if all these findings are out here, these random number generators at Princeton, this Gonsfeld study across, where the people have looked at this across the world, why is no one talking about it? Shouldn't it be obvious? Shouldn't it be taught? Like, why wasn't I taught it so when I studied psychology? Um, I think we have a very similar situation to what Galileo faced a long time ago, a few hundred years ago, when he looked in his telescope and saw, wait a second, just because the sun is moving across the sky doesn't mean that we, the sun is revolving around us. It's actually the reverse, that we're revolving around the sun, which is at the center. At his time, that was a very controversial statement to be making. And certain clergymen wouldn't look in his telescope to see the evidence because it challenged the prevailing belief systems and would have meant that people had to rethink things. And I think we have something very similar right now. And I show this in the book of... I think there are some very smart scientists who, if they looked at the evidence and actually looked at it with an open mind, might be exploring these issues a lot more. And I think we need that to advance scientifically, but also for all the reasons you mentioned in terms of existentially and thinking about the lack of separation that actually exists. So that's, a, that's one of the key things that I noticed throughout the research is that very smart scientists have not looked at this closely. Or maybe they looked at one study that didn't match their standards and that's it. And they're busy with other things, and they don't want to look at things that they don't think can be real. So that's a, that's a really important point. Okay, so we just like went through a, a major section of the book, different phenomena that people will call psychic or psi, P-S-I is a word that, that scientists use. Then I have another section on the evidence that consciousness survives when the brain and body die, that consciousness exists actually independently. Again, if that's true, then this notion that consciousness is independent of the brain, that it's not produced by the brain, that, that would line up. So I have a chapter on near-death experiences. And to me, this is one of the crazier areas. Um, and I actually have my own podcast coming out, Matt, in the fall. I've interviewed over 40 people in this space. So a lot of the scientists and practitioners in my book, I've, I've interviewed and will be releasing them. I think people really like to hear the voices of these people. But the near-death experience, if you had asked me, two years ago, I would have said, well, I haven't heard much about it, but I know people, like, they see a light and when their brain is about to shut off, it releases chemicals that makes people hallucinate. That's what I would have said. And I think that's the conventional wisdom on the near-death experience. What I realized through the research and talking to scientists myself is that these experiences are occurring in some cases where there's zero brain function. So these are people in cardiac arrest, and it's known during cardiac arrest that it's, a, it's known as a flat EEG, meaning there's no electrical activity in the brain, and people are having memories during that period when there's no activity in the brain. So that is extremely difficult to explain by conventional means, because you'd expect that you need a conscious, active brain to have all this stuff happening. Um, but I should take a step back. What's happening? What are these memories people are reporting? And this is really important, because if, if we take these things literally as being descriptions of reality, then it's, it's world changing. And so a few people who have read, so my book comes out in October, a few people who have read it, early readers and some endorsers have said that the near death experience to them, that's like one of the most world changing for people who haven't been exposed to it. So across cultures back from 
the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, people describe these things. But it was only more commonly discussed around the 1975, uh, Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, profiled the near-death experience. And it's because resuscitation technology has gotten so much better. Meaning we have an ability now to basically bring people back from the dead, whereas before we just didn't have that technology. So now the reports are like in the millions of people who have some variation of the, these experiences. And now scientists can study them under different conditions. What people report is like they see a, a white light. Sometimes they describe hovering over their body. And in the craziest cases, they describe things accurately that happened in the room while they're hovering over their body. And this in some cases hap is happening when there's no brain function. So it's called a veridical out-of-body experience. Veridical meaning it's verified by people who were not dead at the time afterwards. So they come back in their body and they're like, oh yeah, you were, this, you were the surgeon doing these things. And it's like, well, how did you know that? Um, because they were still conscious. Their consciousness apparently wasn't dependent on their brain. Um, then they, this is actually one of the most important insights that I've gotten, is that people report a life review. It's where their life flashes before them, like their entire life, and they're judging themselves for how they acted. But this is the kicker. In some cases, they report experiencing their life through the eyes of those they affected. So if they, if they inflicted pain or harm on someone, they feel that pain through that person's eyes. And they're judging themselves for how they acted. It's like, I should have known better. I shouldn't have acted that way. So if we take that as a literal description of what the meaning of life is, just as a little snippet, then it suggests that we need to be acting well because that's what we or consciousness wants. And it also suggests that this, we have this universal consciousness because how are people with no brain functioning at all or minimal brain functioning at the very most are able to switch back and forth between perspectives? Like how can I take the perspective of some person that I affected? If consciousness is everywhere, then that totally makes sense. It's just like you're switching perspectives because you were able to do it in this other form. But that's a really key insight that I always think about and when I talk to people about it, it is a world-changing finding because it suggests over and over again when I talk to people who have these experiences or the scientists that it's not about how much money you made in your life. That's not what you're going to be thinking about during this life review that everyone's reporting. It's how did you treat yourself and others? How did you treat the cashier at the grocery store? Those are the things you're judging yourself for more so than did you make a billion dollars and have a huge mansion. So it's a really important insight that comes out of the near-death experience. And then sometimes people report seeing deceased relatives. And in some cases, they'll see a deceased relative who um, they didn't know was deceased yet. And then they find out later was deceased. So it's another verifiable thing. They come back in their body because they, they talk to this, some being of light and that they, they just say, well, you need to go back. There's more for you to do. They come back in their body and they're forever changed. They don't fear death as much in some cases. Sometimes electrical equipment doesn't work around them. So I've talked to researchers on this who, uh, Dr. Jan Holden is one. And she talks about at the, the Association for Near-Death Experiences. It actually exists. They have a conference. And she says, you can always tell who's had a near-death experience and who hasn't. Because the people who have had the near-death experience, they're not wearing watches. Because watches don't work around them. And electrical things break down. And I've heard that from different psychics. I have no idea why. But it's like people have these changes. Um, not only apparently physical, but also just in terms of how they look at life. And there are many times their, their life preferences change. They don't care about their job as much. Divorces are reported because it's like all of a sudden they come back and they have a totally different perspective on how things work. So that's, there's a whole chapter on that and, and the science behind it. In some cases, this is another one that's crazy. People who have been blind since birth 
report being able to see during the near-death experience. And then they come back in their body and they can't see anymore. I mean, how do you explain that if our senses and if our consciousness is dependent on our brain? But if it's not, again, it's, it's not a paranormal thing. It's like, okay, well, the brain is a limiter of our consciousness and maybe our organs were limiting this broader knowing, as the researchers call it, a transcendental awareness that we have. So when a blind person or some person who's colorblind, that's happened as well, they're able to see things they can't normally see during the near-death experience. It's like their brain's filter, filter has been unlocked. And they have this broader awareness that's always been there, but it's typically limited. There's also something known as the shared death experience, which is where an, a healthy bystander is sitting by the bedside of someone dying and has a near-death experience with the person who's dying. Sometimes they co-live the life review of the person who's dying. Totally nuts. I mean, so they come back and they, this goes against the argument that the near-death experience is caused by a hallucination of a dying brain. Because the person who has the shared death experience doesn't have a dying brain. They're a normal person at the bedside. They're not even sick and they're having the experience. So how do you explain that? I don't know. They're making it up. I, mean, I think there's enough of these cases where it's very hard to explain as, as some kind of made up thing or, or fraud. Um, so that's the near-death experience. I think it's a really important phenomenon that should be taught more regularly. We should learn from it and study. It doesn't always happen to people. So even in, they're known as prospective cardiac arrest studies. These are studies where cardiologists or medical professionals are talking to people right after they have, they come out of cardiac arrest. In some cases, the person dies, but in other cases, they come back to life. And you would expect in cardiac arrest, the, it is like, it is so traumatic physiologically to go through that. Brains off, heart is not functioning, they're clinically dead. A percentage of those people after cardiac arrest describe this near-death experience. So Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who is a cardiologist in, in Netherlands, he's looked at this extensively, and he had an article published in The Lancet, which is a very prominent medical journal, um, talking about what he found, that a percentage of people, somewhere between, between 10 and 20%, depending on the study size, they're reporting this near-death experience right after cardiac arrest very hard to explain. Why is it that some people have it and others don't? We don't know. But there should be 0% of people having this experience and it's not zero. Again, it's an anomaly that we can't explain. Anything there, Matt, you want to touch on? Oh, man. Yeah, man. There's like so much. Um, I'll begin with, I think, the important idea of when you said the life review, and I've heard that as well. And so you die and and what happens is you see how you affected others. Um, and that when we're in this physical reality, we're kind of trained for competition. Uh, get what I can. If, you, if you're not on the ball, then somebody's going to take your money and whatever, baloney, right? That's how we're conditioned. Um, and I, I am of that idea too that, you know, what I, I, as I move around, I know that I affect others. But I think that in the life review, um, people sometimes think God will come down and he'll judge you um, or you just die and you go into the dirt and then, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, um, be responsible for what you've done. And I don't think that it's a, a, anything outside of you that holds you responsible. I think it's you. I think it's a mirror that comes up and you review you. So you have no exit. You have no exit from what you've done. 
because you're looking at it and you're like, oh crap, that was me. It's not anyone else judging me. I'm judging me because I can feel what I have done to others. And then you start to look into the mind and you're trying to find reason for your actions. You're seeing if you can make sense um, within yourself that was this reasoning of um, survival, right? That's what in fear, you're in survival mode, you know? And so we, I think culturally have this, um, you know, just like I said, competition mode, get what you can survive, you know, push a man down rather than helping him up. And if we can just come to that little tiny idea that our, we affect our, our reality, um, it's super powerful. And, you know, the, you're getting dangerously close to the meaning of life. And so when we go around just like in your, you're in your deathbed and then you're like, oh yeah, I acquired all this material stuff. That's great. You can, you can, you can maybe want a house for your kids. You want to have a car so you can get around. That's all well and good. Um, but when that's your main driving force, you're going to realize at some point that that was empty. There's no fulfillment there. And uh, I had Frank Ostaseski on the podcast a while ago and uh, he wrote a book called uh, the five invitations, what death can teaches about fully living and he's a co-founder of Zen Hospice. So he helped hundreds of thousands, well, thousands of people go in into the process and talk to them as they, you know, as they um, were processing their death and what was most important. So when you realize that number one, that, you know, you're going to have to face your own actions and you know this, you know, and you can even just present it as an idea. You don't have to believe it, but you know, you affect people and you're going to have to be responsible for that in some way within yourself, not someone else. Uh, two, you could die at any moment. You can buy a die whenever, you know, you don't get a hundred years promised. Um, then you can start living from a little bit of a different view, you know, and a more fulfilling view. So you take a life review. So there's two processes that usually when I do coaching with people, I start them through right away. Um, originally I would use a shamanic death ritual, which is basically just a hypnotic death process. So it's like, okay, here we go. And we relax you. Right. And then I go, bam, you know, and I'm like, Hey, now you're dead. Let's do a life review. And people will just process. Why did I care so much about this? Why did I care so much about that? And in the hypnotic process, all it is is I just relax your mind. So if you're thinking about Cheetos and picking up the kids and doing whatever task list you got to do, you can't really get into the imagination of what it would be like if you died. Um, but the other one that I do, cause I feel like it's a little bit more powerful now is like a heart hypnosis. So I hypnotize you into your heart and then I let your heart uh, ask certain questions to yourself. Okay, you're human. You're here. What's most important? Not out of the head and fear-based, but into heart-based where you know you're eternal. You keep living that you affect every single thing, that you're connected to everything. You know, what is meaningful to you? And that's what you're getting to like step by step. It's uncovering um, possibility. I think that's what we're doing here with this awakening of consciousness is we're kind of like um, I say dolphins, you know what I mean? But we've conditioned to think that we're goldfish. And one by one, these limiting factors or these valves are opening up and we're starting to regain our abilities, realizing that we can send a, a signal to our other dolphin friend and they can send one back, that we can actually jump out of the water, that we can use our collective consciousness and hunt together so that food is easy and that we don't have to su support or push anyone down, that we can actually collaborate and have a much better life experience. Um, so that's my rant and you just keep going with whatever you want. <laughs> I love it. I agree with you. And I love the point you made about it's, it's you judging yourself. So what I think the evidence points towards is a universal consciousness of which we are a part, which implies that there's no separation, that the judger is the judged. This is a very non-dual thing to say. And that's kind of where I come out on things, that there is no duality of, of some third party judging us. 
Um, so that's a really important point because that's how I used to think about when people talked about like divinity, that it's there's me and then there's a separate immortality force out there. What this is suggesting to me is that those are one and the same, just the appearance of separation. That's a really key point, I think. Um, and that's what's suggested by it because if, again, if, if I'm able to go through the eyes of someone else to experience feelings, it's the same consciousness. That's the only explanation I can think of. It's a universal consciousness having different lenses through which it has an experience. So that's an important point. But I agree with you, Matt, to, to hone in on the life review because that is, it is getting close to the meaning of life. And for me, it's, I'm not sure if we can fully ever comprehend it with our limited brain when we get into logical mode, but that's one little nugget to me that stands out because it, it has such a profound impact on people. And for me to have interviewed people on my podcast who've had these experiences, how much it's changed them. I mean, they come back totally transformed. So one is Dr. Alan Huguenot, who's a hardcore scientist himself, had a near-death experience before it was okay to talk about them, like around 1970. And he was cradled by a being of light after, while being in an accident. And he was like, I don't want to go back into my body. And they said, you need to come. There's more you need to do. But it totally changed how he thinks about things. He doesn't fear death at all. He says he fears pain. And I've heard this from people. They fear suffering. But the actual act of, of death to them is viewed as a transition of consciousness rather than something negative and actually the experience that people have is this one of they feel unconditional love that's what they always talk about it's this blissful sensation i mean dr eben alexander is another great example he wrote proof of heaven he's a former harvard neurosurgeon he's been so kind to endorse my book um and i in my interview with him it was just so evident how um how life transformative it was for him as a former materialist and a hardcore scientist at harvard to go through this experience that was so undeniable and then to come back and he was in a hardcore coma for a week and I talked to to professors at University of Virginia who are examining the medical records and they show that he was as close to death as possible and was having these highly lucid experiences that have taught him about what reality is so the, I guess the overarching point I want to make with near-death experiences is that we could regard them as somehow a hallucination caused by a brain in which case it's not real alternatively we could regard them as a window into the actual reality that we're clouded from on a normal basis. And if that's true, then we need to be looking at this very carefully to see what the commonalities are, what the differences are, and why. Because it might teach us about the actual nature of reality that we're in. So I think that's huge. And there are other things that teach us about that, like psychedelics. And I talk about psychedelics in my book. All right, guys, that wraps up part one with Mark Gober. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I love his background and where it came from, uh, sports, you know, uh, really educated, exploring consciousness and all these things that, um, you know, that, that are really mysterious, like remote viewing and precognition. And he's really uh, dove deep, dive deep with the experts. So, you know, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And I'm so glad that he's another a voice and just exploring a little bit beyond the material reality and how we perceive our reality and, you know, what, what does that mean when we when we open up our minds and we, we get these ideas and how do we apply that? So um, super stoked to have him on and you're going to love part two. So make sure that if you like this episode to please share it, leave a review in iTunes. Please go to patreon.com and support on Patreon. Thanks so much to my patrons. Um, 
that really does help. Trust me. Um, if for those of you guys who want to stay up to date, go to uh, mattbelair.com and sign up for the email list. And then if you want that lucid dreaming, just go forward slash lucid dreaming and you get an audio and you get an ebook to teach you how to lucid dream. For those of you guys who want some coaching and you want to dive deep and you want to learn what I've learned from you know 200 podcasts of amazing people um, studying around the world and doing uh, you know reading books and exploring consciousness and, and and all this stuff in peak performance and spirituality. If you're really serious about leveling up and you want to explore the heart journey experience, a shamanic death ritual, you want to um, do some one-on-one stuff and overcome blocks and limitations. You want to find your life purpose. You really want to um, dig in and, and make a change. Hit me up at mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and we'll have a chat and we'll see how I can help and uh, you know get you to where your heart wants to go, something that you're inspired to do. Um, I want to thank David Lone Bear Senapass for all the work that he's doing. Check out LoneBearsArts.com and Distant Ancient Echoes on Facebook. This Native American elder is truly extraordinary, and he does need our help, and I'm helping him as much as I can. Check out his work. He sent balloons into space. He has invented a three-pole magnet. Um, he has more stuff, and he's been doing all of this with no help um, You know, as his elders told him to bring this teaching to the non-natives and it's truly extraordinary stuff so please take a look uh we could use anybody from you know web designers graphic uh administrative assistants uh benevolent investors all of that stuff his stuff is really amazing and i definitely um, encourage people to look at what he's doing and what he's saying it was a privilege and an honor to study with him all summer so please check him out and I think that's it. I want to thank you guys for listening. Oh, yeah, check out zenathlete.com. Give that book to somebody, a teacher, a yogi. Um, get this book in the hands of kids. And, you know, if you're looking for leveling up in your life, it really is a guide to self-mastery. It could be Zen life. So check that out. Give it to a friend. And uh, make sure you do an act of kindness today. And if not, three acts of kindness is the number one best way to support this podcast and support what it's all about so all of my love and appreciation and gratitude to you wherever you are and before we close this out let's just come to a state of peace and coherence fill ourselves up with as much uh, love and compassion and kindness as we can and blast that out to the entire world so wherever you are in the world taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just fill yourself up with just one thing you're really grateful for a friend a family uh, having eyesight a car roof over your head food Begin to magnify that energy and just let that breath out slowly, feeling totally relaxed, totally connected, and totally energized. Taking another deep breath in through the nose, and this time just really magnifying that feeling of love and gratitude and kindness within yourself. Just really magnifying that and see this energy come from the, uh, the sky and the universe down pulsing through every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being, magnifying this energy as you let it out slowly with all the limitations and all the doubts, all the self-criticisms. Now, another deep breath in through your nose, really magnifying this feeling of love, kindness, compassion, enthusiasm, gratitude, just magnifying that feeling. I want you to send that out to all your friends, all your family, all your loved ones, just sending them love and peace and connection and kindness and support. And I'm sending you that energy and just send it out to all the podcast listeners, everybody you've ever met, creating this energetic field. Just see yourself send that energy out to the entire world, to your everyone you've ever met, and to the galaxy and all the way out to the solar system and the universe, just pulsing from the center of your heart, the center of existence. <sighs> there we go. Thank you so much for listening. I love and I appreciate you. Have an amazing day, and I will see you in part two with Mark Gober.